Welcome to the Awake Asia podcast. This podcast is about crossing cultures to share stories about everyday people doing extraordinary things. Each episode, we share knowledge, inspiration, and stories of triumph to help you live a fitter, healthier, more purpose-driven, conscious lifestyle. My name is Luke, and along with my wife, Emily, we are the creators of AwakeMethod.com. In today's episode, we have Cyrus Kambada. Cyrus was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and two other debilitating autoimmune conditions at 22. Not one to back down, he made it his mission to fully understand the mechanisms of nutrition and pursued his PhD in nutritional biochemistry. Through his research, he uncovered that the best way to manage his type 1 diabetes was a whole foods, plant-based diet. Along with his business partner, Robbie Barbaro, a fellow type 1 diabetic, they're the founders of the Mastering Diabetes Coaching Program and Summit. In this session, we get down to the nuts and bolts of diabetes, tackling the keto, low-carb diet. We also discuss the sugar versus fat debate and what actually contributes to long-term insulin resistance. Get your pen and paper out for this one. You might want to play this back a second time to grasp all the concepts that this legend shares. I hope you enjoy this episode. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 22. So I was a senior in college and I was living what I thought was a pretty healthy, normal, you know, quote unquote, healthy lifestyle. And what I found out um, was that within a six month period, I ended up getting diagnosed with not one not two, but three autoimmune diseases. And it was very striking because at that time, uh, you know, I was an active guy. I've been playing soccer frequently, going to the gym, lifting weights, eating what I consider to be a healthy diet, which we can get into much more detail about. And uh, it just didn't, like, I didn't understand how, how could someone like me develop diabetes, right? So um, the doctors basically told me at that time that I had three autoimmune conditions. The first one is Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, uh, which is an autoimmune. So it's an autoimmune version of thyroid dysfunction. Basically, your thyroid gland is not producing sufficient amounts of thyroid hormone. Uh, the second one is called alopecia uh, universalis, and that basically means total body hair loss. And so I lost all of the hair on my body, on my head, my eyebrows, my eyelashes, my armpit hair, my chest hair, my leg hair, you name it. Um, and then the third one was type one diabetes and all three of them set in, in, in within a six month period. So imagine being a, a quote unquote normal guy and then getting diagnosed with three autoimmune conditions and in a short period of time now walking around with a whole collection of medical devices and prescription medications. So I got <clears throat> I, I had to start using Humalog insulin, like a fast-acting insulin, and then a basal insulin, and then I had to carry syringes and test strips, and then I had to carry a blood glucose meter, and then I had to start to pay attention to like micro-dissect all the food I was eating, and I was like, oh my God, this is exhausting. I don't understand what the heck happened to me. So as a result of that, I just, uh, you know, I I tried to... Truth be told, I tried to make it all go away and just play the, the neglect game for the first year and not really make too many changes and kind of follow, this, uh, follow the, uh, the doctor's advice. And I definitely lowered my carbohydrate intake because, you know, people tell you, well, the reason you're diabetic is because you ate too much sugar and you're eating too much sugar. So don't eat so much sugar. So eat less carbohydrate because carbohydrate turns into sugar. And so I started eating, you know, more red meat, white meat, turkey burgers, eggs, peanut butter, milk, cheese, and trying to avoid foods like fruits and vegetables, not vegetables, fruits, breads, cereals, pastas, whole grains, because again, you know, I'm trying to keep my carbohydrate intake low. So it was supposed to make my blood glucose much more controllable, but it, it did the exact opposite. It made my blood glucose just a complete nightmare, literally to the point where I would check my blood glucose on any given day. And the number could be, you know, lower than what's considered, you know, safe in the 45, 50 range or so, or it could be like four times as high as what's considered safe. It could be 400 or it could be 450. And so 
when your blood glucose fluctuates, you know, low, high, low, high, low, high, low, high, all day long, every day, it is not only emotionally and mentally draining, but it is physically exhausting. And so uh, it took about a year for me to just kind of wake up and say, you know what, like I'm not, I just choose not to live this way. I'm not going to do this anymore. Like I'm too young. I still have a lot of athletics to play. Uh, I still have like so much of my life ahead of me that I'm not, I could accept this fate and just kind of complain the rest of my life or I could do something about it. So I started looking for more information and uh, I got open to this idea of, of eating a plant-based diet. So under the guidance of a guy named Doug Graham, uh, he taught me how to eat a, a low-fat, plant-based, whole-food diet with you know, lots of fruits, lots of vegetables. And I just started to do that, literally. That was the simplest thing I could do. And um, I was scared that by eating more fruits and vegetables that my, my insulin use would go through the roof because that's what the doctors had told me and that's what everybody else was telling me. But in reality, uh, the more fruits and vegetables I ate and most importantly, the less meat and cheese and fish and oil and turkey burgers and peanut butter and nuts and seeds and avocados, less of that stuff I ate, the better my blood glucose control became. So it was kind of intriguing because I was like, well, wait a minute, I'm doing kind of the exact opposite of what everybody else is telling me to do. Uh, and it's working not only better to control my blood glucose, but my insulin use fell by 40% in, in a week, you know, in two weeks. And so that launched my desire to go to graduate school. And I went to UC Berkeley for five years and I studied nutritional biochemistry for five years so that I could really understand the nuts and bolts, the molecular level super nerd details of what the heck is going on and what causes diabetes and how do you reverse it and how does exercise factor in and how does your diet factor in. And so after five years, I had unearthed this just like giant collection of research about you know, ways that you can treat and uh, like really, really, really manage type 1 diabetes with incredible precision and reverse prediabetes and type 2 diabetes using only food, a plant-based diet. And once I uncovered this information, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, why does the world not know this? Why are we being told the exact opposite? That's definitely my next question as well. Obviously, this research has been around for quite a while. It's not just last year that it came out. But why right. is that the case? Why is the research that exists that is there, what the medical system practices is completely opposite? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I would answer that question in like multiple different ways. I would say, number one, doctors are not trained to actually talk nutrition. So in medical school, they go through 10,000 plus hours of medical training. And they talk nutrition for like six or maybe 15 or maybe 20 on a, in a good, you know, like the maximum. Um, and so, but the nutrition that they're taught, that they're taught is not uh, evidence-based nutrition. It's literally like, how do you prevent vitamin C deficiency? And how do you prevent against rickets and scurvy? And these are all these like archaic diseases that don't even exist anymore. You know, they're like not the things that are plaguing our population. It's not nutrition to reverse cancer and reverse diabetes and reverse Alzheimer's disease. It's, it's uh, you know, nutrition for things that used to exist 50 years ago. Um, so that's number one. And then number two, uh, I think that there's just a huge, huge interference pattern that's being run by that right now by uh, businesses that have a lot of money. And so, you know, food manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies and the U.S. government to a certain extent, who's also implicated in this problem, um, are all just sort of like pumping the American uh, psyche or the worldwide psyche, I would say, full of confusing information that leaves people powerless. And then as a result of that, people throw their hands up in the air and they say, well, I don't know what to do. And, uh, and then there's a bunch of deceptive marketing that makes you believe that these types of conditions are not reversible. And the only thing that you can do is actually get on some type of oral medication or insulin or do chemotherapy if you're living with cancer, you know, and that's the only treatment. There's no reversal mechanism. There's only a treatment. So it's kind of, you know, I think there's a collection of factors right now, which are just confusing people and keeping people from making true progress. But in reality, you know, the answer is right in front of you. And it's actually the simplest answer around. Yeah, I agree. Definitely is the simplest answer around having chatted with a lot of the experts on the summit. It's just a whole food plant-based diet. So I want to go into what you said earlier when you were back in college and you were saying you're eating a healthy diet. 
what was this healthy diet? What did it constitute of? Okay, that's a great question. So what I considered to be a healthy diet back in the day, uh, and I'll give a huge shout out to my mom because my mom made sure that from the time I was in kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, that she made me a lunch every single day. And she did not give me the opportunity or the money to go buy food from the outside world, right? And that was great because it gave me, you know, people were very attracted to the food I was eating and, and it was very tasty. And um, she sort of instilled in me this idea that like the food that you make at home is the most healthy food that you will ever eat, period, end of story, right? So that being said, every single day I would eat a sandwich and the sandwich wasn't just like two pieces of bread with cheese on the inside. It was like, it was like a sandwich with uh, a little bit of like black forest ham and then there was lettuce and arugula, I'm sorry, there was lettuce, there were pickles, there was mustard, there was tomatoes. So there was a fair number of like, you know, salad type vegetables on the inside. Um, and then on, on the side, I would probably have like an, an apple or a banana or something. And then I might have like a, I don't know, maybe some like a small bag of chips, you know, thinking, okay, well, I guess chips are healthy for me. Right. Um, but then, you know, when we would come home for dinner, I would eat, you know, a big thing of pasta and the pasta would have like maybe a little bit of meat sauce on it, but it was all home prepared and it didn't have a bunch of like, you know, synthetic ingredients added to it. At least we didn't think it did. Um, and then for breakfast, I would have like a giant bowl of cereal with maybe, you know, uh, another fruit here on the side or something. So to me, that was a quote unquote healthy diet. But when you look back on it, you know, I could tear apart every single meal now and say, oh, great. Look at all the sugar that you were consuming, like literally refined sugar that you were eating for breakfast. And then look at all the saturated fat that was in that sandwich that could have been predisposing you towards, you know, metabolic diseases and Oh, look, there's more saturated fat in your dinner. And then there's a whole bunch of animal products that don't necessarily meet, you know, belong there. So, you know, from this perspective, the diet that I looked that I that I ate back then is no longer healthy. But at that time, the marketing and the um, the knowledge that we had at that point made us believe that that was a healthy diet. You mentioned you had type one diabetes and two other um, autoimmune diseases. For those that don't know, could you just paint a picture of the difference between type 1 versus type 2 and what potentially could contribute to type 1? For sure. Okay, so type 1 and type 2 diabetes are effectively different um, different diseases altogether. Uh, the term diabetes basically just means sugar in your urine. That's really like what it, what it, the root cause of it is. Um, but uh, the way to think about diabetes is basically uh, a, a collection of diseases that result in a difficult time controlling your blood glucose. So everybody has, uh, you know, a blood glucose level, which is required for life. So if I were to test your blood glucose level right now, chances are it would be between something like 70 and 130. And the reason it's there is because the glucose that's in your blood is specifically there to make sure that your brain has sufficient fuel at all times to operate. If your blood glucose drops below 70, you will notice immediately. You'll start to get lightheaded, you might slow your speech, you might start to sweat, and that's because your brain is sending out an alert signal that's saying, hey, I don't have enough glucose in my, in, you know, for use. Um, but what happens in diabetes is that your blood glucose goes the opposite direction. It goes up. It goes beyond 130, 150, 200, 250, 400, 500. So it can go very, very, very high. And um, the reason it does that is because there's always an, an interplay between how much glucose is in your blood versus how much insulin is in your blood. Okay. So at the very base of it all, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition. And what that means is that my own immune system has determined that there are, has, has manufactured antibodies to go attack the cells that manufacture insulin inside of my pancreas, okay? So my immune system has basically been fooled into believing that my own beta cells inside my pancreas are a threat to my life. And as a result of that, my immune system has then attacked them and killed those cells and as a result of that, I can no longer manufacture insulin, right? So when I eat food, regardless of what the food is, there is a certain amount of insulin which is required in order to get those nutrients, specifically the glucose, into your muscles and into your liver and to a certain extent into your brain, a small amount. 
But if the insulin is not there at all, that's a huge problem. So the glucose will be there from the food that you're eating, but there's no insulin to allow it to get inside of tissues. And then when you go check your blood glucose, your blood glucose is very high. Okay, so again, type one is an autoimmune condition. Okay, but then when it comes to, to pre-diabetes and type two diabetes, those are not autoimmune conditions, those are lifestyle conditions. And what happens in that situation is generally speaking, it's not an insulin deficiency as much as it is a problem of your muscle and problem of your liver to uptake or pull glucose out of your blood and take it inside those tissues. So uh, those conditions are caused by another condition called insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is basically this underlying condition that when it is present, your muscle and liver have a very difficult time uh, recognizing insulin inside of your blood. So your pancreas is making manufacturing sufficient amounts of insulin usually. And the insulin is trying to knock on the door and say, hey, muscle, hey, liver, I got this glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? And the muscle and liver, they just can't recognize that signal. So as a result of that, glucose stays in your blood. And then when you check your, your blood glucose, the, the value is high. So in terms of insulin resistance, back in the day it was sugar. You were just kind of worrying about sugar. On the flip side, we've got saturated fat. So what actually contributes to insulin resistance? It's a great question. So <clears throat> there are many people that will lead you to believe that insulin resistance is caused by insulin. And you'll hear this over and over and over and over again. And, and people who, who say this generally are in this low-carbohydrate world or ketogenic world. And what they say is, when you eat food that contains carbohydrates, whether it's fruits or grains or cereals or breads or pastas, all of these high-carbohydrate foods um, trigger your pancreas to manufacture large amounts of insulin. And when there's too much insulin in your blood, then your liver and pancreas and muscles protect themselves against so much insulin and they basically initiate this thing called insulin resistance. So effectively, these muscles are in a self-defense mechanism to say, hey, no, insulin, there's too much of you. I need, to, I need to become less sensitive, less responsive to you. The truth is that that is not a true statement, okay? That, that does happen, but to a very small extent. There's a much more powerful way to induce insulin resistance, and you can do it in the span of two hours. And the way that you do it is you go eat one meal that has a large amount of saturated fat in it. Okay, so if you, you're non-diabetic, you went and you ate a meal that contained a large amount of saturated fat. When I say large, I mean something like, you know, 10 to 15 grams of saturated fat, which is not unrealistic for a lot of, uh, you know, traditional, you know, meals. So if you went out and ate uh, a meal that contained a lot of saturated fat, what would end up happening is that saturated fat would end up traveling down your esophagus, get into your stomach, get into your bloodstream. Once it's in your blood, the saturated fat would then look for an exit route, look for a way to, to get out of your blood, and it would end up in your muscle, and it would end up in your liver primarily. As soon as that saturated fat sits in those tissues, those tissues uptake it, and then the next time you go and eat a carbohydrate-rich food like a banana or a bowl of quinoa or maybe some raisins, then when the glucose from those carbohydrate-rich foods tries to also get inside of your muscle and also get inside of your liver, your muscle and liver basically say, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, I got all this saturated fat inside of me. In fact, there's so much of it right now, I have to burn this stuff first. Let me burn this stuff first, and I'm going to leave glucose inside of the blood. So as a result of that, the glucose gets trapped inside of your blood while the liver and muscle are preoccupied trying to figure out what they're going to do with this uh, saturated fat. And so that is a state of insulin resistance when your muscle and liver basically have uptaken so much saturated fat that they can no longer communicate effectively with insulin and they are now quote unquote resistant to insulin. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. So you mentioned the keto diet or low carb diet earlier. I understand that some people actually experience positive results um, going keto sure. and, mm -hmm. and whether it's weight loss, whether it's improved insulin sensitivity, why is that? And are there any long-term implications? Yeah, it's a great question actually because <clears throat> in the world of low-carbohydrate diets, I mean, low-carbohydrate diets are, are very popular, and one of the main reasons is because they are very effective weight loss tools. And so most people who adopt a low-carbohydrate diet, as soon as they do it, they start to lose weight rapidly. And as a result of losing weight rapidly, they're able to, uh, they're able to also 
reduce their blood glucose and also reduce their their cholesterol level. And um, they start to feel dramatically better. Sometimes their digestive problems resolve. And as a result of that, you know, they, they look on a piece of paper and they say, hey, look, I did this low carbohydrate thing or this ketogenic diet and I lost 57 pounds. My cholesterol came down by 30%. My blood pressure came down. My use, uh, I'm sorry, my blood glucose came down. I'm not on any oral medications for diabetes or hypertension or high cholesterol anymore. I feel 100% better, right? And none of that is a lie. All of that is true, okay? People who, who say these things are not trying to make something up. They're absolutely telling the truth. Um, but the problem here is that what they're doing is they are eating in a way that promotes rapid weight loss that then gives them a whole collection of these other metabolic benefits. Um, but in the long term, this short-term benefit turns into a disaster, turns into a nightmare. And the reason I say that is because there are, are a number of studies that show that people who eat diets that are higher in animal-based foods in particular, which again are high in saturated fat, higher in animal-based proteins, higher in total fat, um, as a result of eating these, these types of diets, um, people end up, um, their weight loss will plateau at a certain point. They will no longer be able to lose weight. Um, and then usually at that point when their weight loss plateaus, that's when you start to see a lot of these other biomarkers turn around and their cholesterol level goes up again and their blood pressure starts to go up again and their blood glucose starts to go up again. And uh, sometimes their digestive health becomes severely compromised in the long term. Their risk for the development of Alzheimer's disease can also go up. And so it's hard for human beings to look forward into the future and try and do something today that's going to benefit you 10, 15, 20 years into the future, right? And that's part of the problem is that, you know, our entire society is constructed based off of instant gratification. So most people would rather eat a plate of food and get an instant benefit from that food rather than saying, oh, I'm going to eat this food because, yeah, it's going to benefit me now but it's also gonna benefit me 30 years into the future. And so that's where plant-based nutrition comes in because plant-based nutrition is a really, really effective way to improve your short-term health right here and right now and also elicit the same responses. Weight loss, uh, reduced risk for diabetes, reduced blood pressure, uh, improved arterial blood flow, reduced risk for Alzheimer's disease, reduced risk for cancer, and the list goes on. But then also 30 years into the future, your risk for all these chronic diseases that I just mentioned is also extremely low rather than it going up over time. I know you run a coaching program. So have you had clients that came from kind of the low carb perspective and moved on to a whole food plant-based diet or, or what you're advocating and what have you noticed? Were the changes in a few days or were the changes over a few weeks or months? It's a great question. It, it depends a lot on how how strictly they were adhering to a low carbohydrate diet. So I'll answer that question in a number of ways. You know, your average person with diabetes is not necessarily eating like a ketogenic diet or a very, very low carbohydrate diet. They're eating just like a reduced carbohydrate diet. And um, they are finding over the course of time that they're low in energy, their glucose is really hard to control. They might be on oral medications, they might be on insulin, their blood pressure might be going up and their cholesterol might be going up as well. So they come to us with this whole collection of, of problems and, um, and then we put them on a whole food plant-based diet and um, those people who are sort of like your average dieters, right, they end up seeing very quick results. And when I say very quick, I mean some people see improved blood glucose and reduced need for medication within 24 hours. That's literally what happened to me, right? And those, those people tend to be people who are also quite active. The more active you are, the faster this, uh, this turnaround can happen. But then there's people who are, they've been eating a very low carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet for some period of time, call it six months, a year, two years, five years, you name it. And um, they come to us and they've developed such a severe case of insulin resistance that rather than it taking 24 hours or maybe one week to start reversing itself, it might take a month, it might take two months, right? But as they're consistent in their habits and as they drop their total fat intake and eat more plants 
and eat foods that actually are whole foods as opposed to vegan packaged foods, then they start to see sustained improvements. And over the course of a couple of weeks or a month or two months or so, they start to feel a whole lot better. And then at that point, it's like they're living in a completely brand new body. Love it. So in terms of fat, I understand that fat um, destroys beta cells. Yeah, there's actually a significant body of research that shows that it's not necessarily just like fat by itself. Uh, you know, like eating, consuming fat in your diet, right? Whether it's saturated fat or unsaturated fat, like there is a there is a a biological necessity for eating fat in your diet, right? Um, and you know, you can you get fat from like every food you eat. You like literally a banana contains fat, an avocado contains fat, beans contain fat, right? And they all have sort of varying levels of saturated versus unsaturated fat, which we're not going to go into detail about, but the idea here is that you know fat as a macronutrient is not necessarily a quote unquote bad thing or a harmful thing. It's necessary. The problem is that when people consume a too much fat or total fat and b especially too much saturated fat, that's when the problem starts to begin. So, like we talked about earlier, you consume lots of saturated fat and you end up with saturated fat going inside of your liver and inside of your muscles. But then, in addition to that, saturated fat can also start to harm the health of your beta cells. And your beta cells are particularly susceptible to saturated fat because they don't have a very strong defense mechanism. So there's these things called antioxidants, which every cell can manufacture for themselves. And they use these antioxidants as ways to protect against free radical damage. Okay? So when there are free radicals present, a cell says, oh, wait a minute, I have these antioxidants. And then they use the antioxidants to kind of quench this, this free radical threat. But when you consume lots of saturated fat, the saturated fat can create a whole collection of, of uh, free radical damage, and these cells just don't have the capability to protect themselves very well. And so as a result of that, they can easily become uh, dysfunctional, and then as a result of that, they can even die simply by just having too much saturated fat in your diet. And that whole process is referred to as beta cell lipotoxicity. And it's very well researched in, in the evidence-based research. And it's unfortunately something that just doesn't really get talked about too much. For those that don't understand what beta cells are, what are beta cells and why are they important? So beta cells are the only type of cell in your body that's capable of manufacturing insulin, right? Now, <clears throat> you might think, okay, well, fine. How many beta cells do you have? Like, is it a big population? Is it a small population, right? Um, so if you take your pancreas and, and I were to like pull your pancreas outside of your body, what you would find is that your pancreas is like a, you know, it's a pretty, I don't know, it's maybe like eight, eight, nine, ten 10 inches long or something like that. You know, it's, it's kind of got this amorphous jelly, jellyfish like appearance to it. Right. But it's, it's a pretty decent sized organ and your pancreas is responsible for many, many, many functions. And you know, 99 plus percent of the total area or the total volume of your pancreas has nothing to do with insulin production. It's only to manufacture enzymes that will help you digest the food that you eat. Okay, so that's called what's called your exocrine pancreas. The other 1% or even less than 1% of your pancreas has these things called islet cells. And islet cells are your endocrine pancreas and islet cells have inside of them beta cells. And the beta cells are the ones that manufacture insulin, okay? So that's just a long-winded way of me saying there's a very small number of islet cells inside of your pancreas, and there's an even smaller number of beta cells overall, right? And so the beta cell population in your pancreas is actually quite small. So when you jeopardize the ability of your beta cells to manufacture and secrete insulin, then you got a huge problem. And if that problem doesn't get corrected, then diabetes can set in and then it becomes worse and worse over time. For someone that has diabetes, or maybe I would say an average person that, that's probably following a high protein, low carb diet, generally high in saturated fat, and if they move towards a whole food plant-based diet and consume all these carbohydrate rich foods, how would that affect their blood sugar? Yeah, that's a great question. So again, if we go back to this, this premise here that that sugar causes diabetes or that <clears throat> eating carbohydrate causes diabetes, okay? Um, those are, are not fully true statements, okay? 
the reason why people believe that is because if they already are experiencing insulin resistance and a, and a significant degree of it, then when they try and consume carbohydrate-rich foods, then their blood glucose goes high. And so they, rather than taking two steps backwards and saying, oh, look, it's the insulin resistance that actually set the stage for high blood glucose, they point a finger at the, at the carbohydrate-rich food, at the banana, at the bowl of quinoa, at the bowl of rice, and they say, that's the problem. Don't eat bananas. Don't eat mangoes. Don't eat papayas because those, when you did, your blood glucose went high, right? So don't eat those foods. Keep your blood glucose nice and low, right? But in reality, the truth is that we have to dig one step deeper and get to the root cause of the problem. And if you, if you dig deeper and you get to the insulin resistance cause and you say, okay, wait a minute, insulin resistance was caused by an excess accumulation of total fat and especially an excess accumulation of saturated fat. What if we were to design a way of eating that was low in saturated fat, not devoid, but low in saturated fat, such that tissues had the ability to start to absorb glucose again? So the whole purpose of a low-fat, plant-based, whole-food diet is to do exactly that. Number one, lower the total fat intake and especially lower the saturated fat intake. Number two, eat carbohydrate-rich foods that are now metabolizable because the total fat intake is low. And then most importantly, and I cannot stress this enough, a whole food plant-based diet is the most nutrient-dense diet on the planet, period, end of story. And when I say nutrient-dense, I mean there's no other way of eating that can increase or that can give you as many vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. And when you consume food that is very nutrient dense in which you're getting with every single bite, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and micro and, and phytonutrients. Those are the disease combating and disease protecting nutrients that are going to bat for you 100% of the time in every possible scenario. And so you're eating a diet that's low in saturated fat, low in total fat, higher in carbohydrate, and nutrient dense. And when you do that, Insulin resistance doesn't stand a chance in your body. In terms of fat sources, uh, whole fats. So what about your polyunsaturated and your monounsaturated fats, things like your olive oil? Uh, what's your take on that? For sure. It's a great question. So uh, we've talked about the fact that saturated fat can be very problematic. When it comes to unsaturated fat, there's, there's two types of fat. There's polyunsaturated fat and then there's monounsaturated fat. Uh, the... The polyunsaturated fat, otherwise known as PUFA, P-U-F-A, polyunsaturated fatty acids, those are the most beneficial uh, type of unsaturated fatty acids. And those are, the, those are the types of fatty acids that you have to get from your diet because your body can't manufacture them. Okay, the monounsaturated fatty acids, your body can manufacture, and therefore they're not as necessary from your diet. Okay, so... We've heard a lot about these omega-3 fatty acids. It's very important to get these omega-3 fatty acids. And the answer is yes, it's important to get them. You don't necessarily need anything more than about two grams of omega-3 fatty acids per day. And those are the polyunsaturated fatty acids. So the, the simplest way to get that on a daily basis is literally to eat one to two tablespoons of ground chia seeds, freshly ground chia seeds per day, or one to two tablespoons of freshly ground flax seeds per day. If you do that, you will meet your omega-3 essential fatty acid requirement, which will meet your polyunsaturated fatty acid requirement, and uh, it will prevent against long-term chronic diseases. And you know, Dr. Joel Furman actually talks very openly about the fact that people who consume diets that are low in omega-3s um, end up with um, cognitive problems in the long term. They're, they either get brain atrophy, which is brain shrinkage. They either get MDD, multiple depressive disorder. They're at a higher risk for dementia, higher risk for Alzheimer's. And there's a significant body of research to back this up. So the idea here is that don't stress about getting your, your polyunsaturated fatty acids. Just make sure that there's a small amount of, uh, of flax seeds or chia seeds into your diet. And if you do that on a daily basis, then you know, you are, uh, you're maximizing your your chances of living a chronic disease-free life. For sure. So in terms of um, ground flax seeds and ground chia seeds, I understand that that's ALA sources of omega-3s. The process of conversion to ALA to EPA, DHA, which is what we need, is uh, 
is not not the best. So can you explain that and possibly whether we actually need to supplement with EPA, DHA, or ALA is just sufficient? So think about it as a sort of like this totem pole. So at the very top, you have this stuff called ALA, okay? And then ALA, underneath it, like you said, we have ALA can then be converted into EPA and DHA. And the EPA and DHA are very necessary because they're the things that promote brain health and eye health. And um, these, are the, these are the very bioactive compounds that are actually what are promoting you know, health in many tissues. Okay, so the question is, if you can convert ALA in the EPA and DHA effectively, then is it necessary to also consume EPA and DHA? Or if you can't convert ALA into EPA and DHA, then you know, do you have to go consume EPA and DHA separately? Okay. And you know, I would say that there's it this is as controversial as as you want it to be. Okay. Um, there are there's lots of research to show that people in general, uh, you know, over the course of time, human beings have developed a, a reduced their ability to convert ALA into EPA and DHA. Okay. And as a result of that, there's a lot of recommendations to go get EPA and DHA uh, rather than only relying on ALA, okay? But um, there's also a whole body of research that shows that one of the things that interferes with the ability of ALA to get converted into EPA and DHA is what's called your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, okay? So let's take an aside real quick. Your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is basically something that you can get measured, okay? So you go to a you take a, a blood test, you can get this thing from omegaquant.com here in the United States. And what it is, is it's basically a way of determining the, the ratio of omega-6 fatty acids to omega-3 fatty acids inside of your blood, okay, specifically in red blood cells. Now, when the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio goes up, okay, something like 8 to 1 or 10 to 1 or 20 to 1, okay, the higher that ratio goes, the less well you can convert ALA into EPA and DHA, okay? But when that ratio goes down, okay, when your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio drops from 20 to 15 to 10 to 8 to 4, and it's somewhere in the range of either 1 to 1 or 4 to 1 where it's, you know, technically supposed to be the ideal range, then your ability to convert ALA into EPA and DHA goes up, okay? So, the last thing I'll say about this is that when you're consuming a quote unquote standard American diet, okay, or a diet that's even like high in uh, animal based products and especially high in like nut based oils, seed based oils, um, what ends up happening is that your omega 6 to omega 3 ratio starts to climb, starts to go high, 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 high. So as a result of that, your conversion of ALA to EPA and DHA goes way down. So what we recommend to people is yeah, in order to maximize. Uh, your ability to convert ALA into EPA and DHA. I want you to focus on getting that omega-6 to omega-3 ratio lower. And when you do that, then you improve your conversion ability and it's not necessary to go supplement EPA and DHA separately. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. So in terms of omega-6, you mentioned animal-based foods. Uh, what actually contributes to a high amount of omega-6? What components in the foods contribute to that? Yeah, this is a great question, actually, because there's a lot of confusion here about what foods contain omega-6 uh, essential fatty acids and whether or not they're necessary. And, you know, most importantly, you hear about these, these things called healthy fats over and over and over again, right? And so people will constantly tell you, oh, it's, you know, don't worry, eat, eat uh, you know, plenty of nuts and seeds and fish and oil because these are all quote-unquote healthy fats. And it's a kind of amorphous term that's like, well, you know, what I say is healthy may be different than what you say is healthy because the term healthy is just kind of a, a weird word to begin with, right? Um, but we do know that oils in particular uh, can significantly increase your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. And um, there's studies to show that, you know, the standard American diet contains usually uh, an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio closer to 15 or 20 to 1. And so a lot of these oils, these are things like sunflower oil, corn oil, soybean oil, cottonseed oil. Palm uh, oil and as some, well, isn't it? Palm oil as well. And some of these oils can contain as much as 30% of their calories from the omega-6 pro-inflammatory omega-6 uh, fatty acids. Okay, so simply by decreasing your intake or completely eliminating your intake of those oils in particular, which is what I recommend, your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio can drop dramatically, like we talked about earlier, 
which can improve your conversion ratio of ALA to EPA and DHA. So that's a good thing. In terms of animal protein, how does animal protein actually boost omega-6? Okay, so there are some, so there, there are these things called trans fatty acids. And trans fatty acids are fatty acids that are primarily in your diet as a result of a manufacturing process that a food manufacturer did. So they'll take a room temperature liquid fat, like olive oil, and they will hydrogenate it through this chemical process, and then they will come up with this stuff called partially hydrogenated oil, partially hydrogenated cottonseed oil, partially hydrogenated soybean oil, you name it. And as a result of the hydrogenation process, they will, it'll turn into a solid. And that's good because consumers like to take a solid and they like to be able to spread it on a piece of toast, or they like to spread it on some other food that they can then eat, and it just increases the palatability and the ability of a food manufacturer to sell that. So they invented this thing called hydrogenation. And as a result of that, these hydrogenated uh, oils are actually extremely problematic. So not only can they help, you know, can they increase your risk for insulin resistance, they can also cause arterial damage. They can increase your LDL cholesterol. They can increase uh, your total cholesterol. And they're a complete nightmare. They're very, very, very inflammatory. There's also small amounts of trans fatty acids that are found in animal products, just naturally occurring trans fatty acids. And um, so as a result of consuming a high amount of animal products, you can end up actually consuming trans fatty acids from foods like beef, pork, lamb. You can get it from butter. You can even get small amounts from milk. And so, like I said earlier, I don't want you to believe that you're getting the predominant, you know, the amount, a large amount of trans fatty acids from animal-based products. There's a small contribution from that, and that is one of the components that can actually increase your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, which again in, decreases your ability to convert ALA into EPA and DHA. What about people supplementing with omega-3 fish oils to kind of balance out that um, equation? The research about omega-3 uh, supplementation from fish oil, from what I've read, is very confusing. Is very confusing. And, it's, and part of the reason is because it's hard to tell what of that research has been influenced by uh, large businesses and or pharmaceutical companies and what is actually true science. And so um, from... So I'll go back on what I said earlier. If you take a, uh, a just one to two tablespoons of ground, freshly ground flax seeds or freshly ground chia seeds, that's all you need, period. That is the highest quality uh, version of uh, ALA that you can put into your body. And it's going to improve your uh, polyunsaturated or your omega-3 status, period, end of story. Okay, That is the highest quality, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, supplementation that you can get for your essential fatty acids. <coughs> uh, consuming a fish oil may increase your omega-3 status, but uh, from what I understand, it can also be pro-inflammatory at the same time. So I'll be the first person to tell you I'm not an expert when it comes to fish oil supplementation, but I do know that people who get extremely good results have zero fish oil supplementation in their diet, and it's not necessary and in, from what I understand, can also be slightly harmful. Yeah, I think beyond that as well, fish oils, there's research showing that there's a lot of heavy metals and PCBs contained in these fish oils supplements uh, as well, isn't it? Yes, that's exactly true. That, that is a very good point, actually. I'm glad you brought that up. And these things are called POPs, persistent organic pollutants, and they're all over the place. So even if you're getting your fish oil from uh, you know, salmon that swim like way out in the deep ocean, um, they're still not immune to uh, heavy metals phthalates, PCBs, dioxins, and these are all sort of like industrial runoffs that happen from, you know, uh, land-based uh, agriculture. And so, yes, that's a huge problem. And when you start to accumulate, you know, heavy metals, mercury, phthalates, you name them, um, over the course of time, these can become extremely problematic and increase your rates for uh, chronic disease. I'm glad I'm out of, the, out of the woods with that one because I used to consume about 14 grams of fish oil a day back in the day. No way. I, I was under this um, philosophy of one gram of fish oil per percentage of body weight. So I was literally chugging down 13, 14 grams of fish oil to improve my insulin sensitivity to facilitate fat loss. 
Oh, wow. That's where I was before and where I am right now. So in terms of weight loss or fat loss for people who are wanting to optimize their body composition, could you share a little bit about the conversion of sugar to fat versus fat to fat? Okay, this is a great question actually because it's confusing once again. So people in the low carbohydrate and ketogenic world will say it's okay to eat fat. It's okay to eat saturated fat. Don't worry about it because when you consume fat, as long as there's a small amount of carbohydrate in your body, then you will also burn fat. So you eat fat, you burn fat. And as a result of that, there's no net accumulation of fat. And then boom, now you're a fat eater, you're a fat burner, and everything's fine, right? And then there's people in the plant-based world who are like, no, 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 no. Um, you know, even though you may not necessarily be uh, accumulating fatty acids over the course of time, you are still inducing a whole collection of arterial damage and a whole collection of, uh, you know, tissue level damage in beta cells, in muscle cells, in brain cells, in liver cells, in pancreas cells, you name it. And from what I understand, um, when you consume large amounts of saturated fatty acids, okay, um, it, it, it induces damage in a number of tissues. So we talked about your muscle, we talked about your liver, we talked about your beta cells, okay? In addition to that, saturated fatty acids can also cause significant kidney damage. And there's plenty of research to show that diets that contain large amounts of saturated fatty acids can actually uh, alter the effect, or sorry, alter the function of your kidney that can then increase your risk for chronic kidney disease, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, and end stage renal disease, okay? So that's a huge problem. So even though it may on paper, you may say, okay, I'm gonna eat this amount of fatty acids and then I'm gonna burn this amount of fatty acids so there's everything's fine because everything's equal to each other. In reality, biological systems don't function that way. And there's a whole bunch of, uh, there's a whole bunch of intermediary pathways which are initiated as a result of a high consumption of fat which you may or may not be accounting for on a piece of paper, okay? So um, when it comes to eating a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, right, um, what people are concerned about is that if you eat carbohydrate, that the carbohydrate's gonna turn into fat. And as a result of that, you're gonna get fatter and you're gonna increase your cholesterol level, right? And the truth is that stuff doesn't happen, That's not, okay? In a low-fat environment, carbohydrate, can easily be used and metabolized effectively inside of your body, okay? But the first part has to be true. Your total fat intake, and especially your saturated fatty acid intake, must be low. And when I say low, I mean a maximum of about 15% calories, total calories, okay? So if you're consuming less than 15% of your total calories in, in fat, then, your ability to metabolize carbohydrate-rich foods goes way up, and your ability to utilize that glucose for energy and not convert it into fat is accelerated, okay? Now, the last thing I'll say about this is that this process of converting glucose into fatty acids is called de novo lipogenesis, DNL. And people, especially people in the diabetes world, love to say, oh, as soon as you eat anything that's carbohydrate-rich, you're, you're gonna instantly perform this thing called DNL, and you're gonna convert glucose into fat, and then you're gonna store the fat, and then you're gonna get fatter, and then you're gonna become more unhealthy, okay? The, the professor that I studied under at UC Berkeley, his name is Dr. Mark Hellerstein, he is literally the world's expert in de novo lipogenesis. He can measure de novo lipogenesis to a greater detail than anybody has ever been able to do in the history of science. So I had the opportunity to learn under him and perform a whole collection of experiments here and, and, and learn about de novo lipogenesis and whether or not it's actually a true, you know, a, 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 an important pathway. And there's plenty of research to show over and over and over again that in human beings, human beings can perform de novo lipogenesis. We just have evolved away from it. So the mechanism and the pathway is there inside of your liver to convert glucose into fatty acids. But in reality, we don't do it very well anymore. Okay, we don't do it very well because one of the reasons is because it's a very, it's a very thermodynamically expensive process. When you convert glucose into fatty acids, it gives off a lot of waste heat. And so it's beneficial for smaller organisms like mice and rats and um, small rodents to perform de novo lipogenesis because they use it to maintain their core body temperature. 
Human beings have so many redundant mechanisms, we don't need that pathway to maintain our core body temperature anymore. So that's one of the reasons we've evolved away from it. The only time that DNL is actually initiated to a quantitatively important level is when you massively overfeed on carbohydrates. And when I say massively overfeed, I mean something like 1,500 extra calories of carbohydrate per day in excess of your calorie requirements, right? So imagine if you were to take your diet, what you eat on a normal day, and then I were to add an extra 1,500 calories of like almost pure carbohydrate into your diet, then you might you will you will start to man you will start to perform de novo lipogenesis to a quantitatively important level, but anything underneath that de novo lipogenesis is so insignificant that when people talk about it in the diabetes world or when people just talk about the fact that it happens all the time, they're missing the bigger picture and they're missing the fact that you can do it, but your liver just isn't going to do it to a to a, an important amount. Wow, that's fascinating. So putting it quite simply and in my own layman terms, please, it's more metabolically expensive to convert sugar to fat. Yes, let's put it this way. It's, it's more metabolically expensive to convert glucose to fat than it is to use glucose as glucose, than it is to, to burn glucose by itself. So rather than taking glucose and converting it into fat and then storing it as fat, what your body will actually do is your body will actually increase your, your metabolic rate to burn that glucose, okay? So it, it, your, your, your liver is an exquisitely detailed organ, and your liver basically is like, it doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to convert that glucose into fatty acids because it's not energetically favorable. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find a way to burn that glucose, or I'm going to find a way to store that glucose, so that's what it does. Love it, love it, love it. I love how you explained that. So I just want to kind of put this graph that I pulled up and I've seen in a few nutritional presentations that I've witnessed. And it talks about the low-fat guidelines in 1976 that came yeah. about and how obesity just rose when those low-fat guidelines came into play. Can you explain that and, and why that's the case? Yeah, okay. So I think what you're referring to is that People often say, they say, well, America tried a low-fat diet, and when America started to eat a low-fat diet, we actually became more obese and more diabetic, and the, the rates of heart disease also went up. So low-fat diets don't work. Is that what you're referring to? Yep. Okay. So yeah, people say this all the time. Cyrus, don't, this low-fat diet thing, we did it. We did it back in the 80s. We did it back in the 90s, and obesity went up. And diabetes went up, so this low-fat diet doesn't work, right? And I say, and if you look at the actual research and you read it, what you will find is that, number one, America never tried a low-fat diet. America, as a population, reduced the total content of fat in their diet from approximately 39% of calories to 37% of calories. America reduced their total fat intake by 2%. That is not a statistically significant reduction to draw any conclusions based off of, number one. Number two, when that 2% reduction in total fat intake was occurring, what food manufacturers did was they started to put in a bunch of refined and synthetic sweeteners into our food. So they were creating these things called low-fat snacks and cookies and crackers and donuts and ice cream and you name it. But what they were doing was they were, they were tricking consumers into saying, look, I'm reducing your fat content, but I'm increasing your sugar, your refined sugar content. And so America became more obese and more diabetic and had higher rates of cancer and higher rates of heart disease, likely because, number one, we did not statistically significantly reduce our total fat intake, and number two, there was just more sugar in our food. So... It's very important to understand that, you know, this idea that we consumed a low-fat diet didn't happen in the first place, but it's, it has a confounding factor or a, a, another variable which is more likely the cause of increasing rates of disease, and that other factor is artificial refined sweeteners that are, again, uh, culprits or they're, they're results of a manufacturing process, they're results of the food industry. And these are a much more problematic component in your food system rather than pointing a finger at saying, oh, we did a low-fat diet and it never worked. So in terms of 
artificial sweeteners or natural sweeteners for that matter. You know, obviously there's things like stevia. What's your take on stevia or artificial sweeteners? Okay. Artificial sweeteners as a whole, as a, as a collection of, uh, you know, different compounds. I will say not even necessarily artificial sweeteners, refined sweeteners. Refined sweeteners, whether they come from an artificial manufacturing process or whether they come from an extract from a plant, right? So let's just be clear. High fructose corn syrup is an artificial sweetener because it went through a manufacturing process to get to your plate, okay? Something like agave nectar is, is we could consider that to be a natural sweetener because it literally just came from a cactus, right? Okay, so the idea here is that whether you're talking about the agave nectar or high fructose corn syrup or sorbitol, mannitol, dextrose, you name it, any of these refined sweeteners are very problematic and they're extremely problematic for a number of reasons. Number one, they can increase your risk for chronic disease. Number two, they can affect your brain's ability to recognize natural flavors in real food. So when you consume a diet that has a lot of artificial, I'm sorry, a lot of refined sweeteners, then your taste buds on your tongue who, who sense that flavor are constantly sending neurological signals up to your brain that, that manufacture more dopamine. So every time you eat food that has refined sweeteners in it, then your brain is lighting up and it's making more dopamine, 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 dopamine. And that can trigger an addictive food uh, you know, behavior. And so people who eat more refined sugar end up having more addictive, more compulsive food behavior. And as a result of that, it's easy to become slightly overweight or very overweight as a result of constantly gravitating towards food that has refined sweeteners in it. So it can be very problematic because number one, it can actually increase inflammation inside of blood vessels and inside of liver, inside of your muscle, you name it. Number two, it can increase, it can trigger dopamine production unnaturally. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something like stevia. Okay, S people like to s consume stevia because they say, oh, it's got no calories. It comes from a plant. It's just a really sweet thing, and I'm just gonna put it in my food, and it's gonna be fine. It's like it's it's got no harm. And I would say, uh, yeah, it's extremely sweet, and yeah, it comes from a plant. But you know what? It's also triggering dopamine production in your brain. It's also unnaturally. Uh, causing you to expect a very sweet flavor every time you open your mouth. And as a result of that, you're likely to go eat, consume more calories, which can then be problematic for a number of reasons. Um, and most importantly, it can decrease your ability to taste real food. And that's the worst part. Okay. So people who consume a lot of stevia, they don't find pleasure in eating beans. They don't find pleasure in eating a tomato. And that's unfortunate because beans are very tasty and tomatoes are very tasty and mangoes are very tasty. And when you reduce your intake of all refined sweeteners and especially something like stevia, then you, your tongue regains the ability to consume and taste real flavors. And when you do, it's pure magic. Love it. It's pure magic. And I remember every time that we're chatting, you're always devouring a mango like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I just did it before this phone call. <laughs> on a positive note, I know you've coached and you've run the Master Ring Diabetes Summit for, for many years now. Um, can you share some inspirational stories to give some hope um, for, for people who potentially want to reverse their type 2 diabetes, better manage your type 1, or even experience a little bit of weight loss? 100%. Uh, so we run a coaching program called Mastering Diabetes. It's the, in the, we've developed, right, my, my business partner and I, Robbie, we both have type 1 diabetes. And we've developed a, the Mastering Diabetes Method, which teaches people how to transition to a low-fat, plant-based, whole food diet uh, and to, to control their blood glucose and, and reverse prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. So we, get, we have become inundated, absolutely inundated with stories from people who are losing weight, who are reducing their blood glucose, who are dropping their A1C value, who are dropping their cholesterol, who are dropping their blood pressure, and who are becoming more active and feeling like a million bucks. Uh, regardless of the type of diabetes you're living with, type 1, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, the benefits are everywhere. So we have people who come into our coaching program and they can lose, you know, on average, 25 pounds. 
Wow. Okay, just simply by transitioning to a whole food plant-based diet. Some people lose 50. Some people lose 75. We've had people who've lost 150 pounds over the course of time simply by reducing their total animal product intake and switching over to eating predominantly plants, if not all plants. And then in addition to that, a lot of people come to us and they say, you know what, Cyrus, I'm pissed. And I say, why are you pissed? And they say, I'm pissed because nobody told me this earlier. I'm pissed because I wasted 25 years of my life eating a low carbohydrate diet and following this conventional idea that carbohydrates are bad for you and that carbohydrates are, you know, are going to make you fat and more diabetic and more overweight. And then I switched over to a diet that is low fat, plant based, whole food. And as a result of that, now I feel like a million bucks. My blood glucose is totally controllable. In fact, I don't even have diabetes anymore. It's gone. And I don't have hypertension and I don't have high cholesterol anymore. Okay. So these stories happen every single day. And it's really, it's, it's the reason why I left biotech and it's the reason why I created this company is because this is the stuff that matters. This is the stuff that actually matters. And we've been able to help thousands of people around the planet transition towards a whole food plant-based diet and they're feeling so much better, looking so much better, and most importantly, free, free of chronic disease for the first time in their life. And I can go to sleep at night knowing that I'm doing my best to help out other people who'd, who would benefit from this information. And you know, I consider myself to be a messenger. And uh, it seems like that this form of nutrition is just the gift that keeps on giving. Love it. So just one final question. This is a question that I ask all speakers. What does being awake mean to you? What does being awake mean to me? Uh, being awake means to me that I am living my life in a body with a mind that is functioning at its tip top for as long as possible. Okay. So I could be alive and I could be waking up every single morning and, uh, you know, eating a mediocre diet and kind of exercising my body a little bit and feeling some emotions and walking through life, kind of feeling a little bit like I'm a robot. Right. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, they do live that existence. Or I could choose to eat the healthiest diet, the most nutrient-dense diet that science has ever discovered, and I can use my body in the gym and play sports and use it to its fullest potential, and I can spend my time with friends and family laughing and, uh, and having a good time, and I can experience true emotional fulfillment from all of those practices. And if I do that on a daily basis, then I am truly alive and I'm sucking every last drip of nectar that comes out of this life. And that's really what I choose to do. And that's really something that I you know, have been working on myself. I'm not a pro at it by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm working on it every single day. And uh, the, the, more I, the more I give, the more I get and the more addicting it really becomes. Brilliant. And because of your work, you painted a picture of hope to many people out there who have probably just kind of given up on life at one point. No question. And it's really, you know, it's really easy to give up on life when, you know, the odds are against you. And when you are getting chronic health diagnoses one after another after another, and then it causes you to feel low energy and just feel like there is no hope. I get it. I've been there. It sucks. It is a terrible place to be. And unfortunately, you know, many people feel like that is their life and that they're going to have to live with that the rest of their life. But I'm here to tell you, and, uh, you know, Luke is here to tell you that is not a true statement at all and that there are solutions and the solution can really start with literally changing the food that's on your plate. And when you do that, the world is your plant-based oyster. I think so. <laughs> plant-based oyster indeed. So you mentioned mastering diabetes. So how can people get in touch with you? Okay, so people can get in touch with us. They go to masteringdiabetes.org and uh, peruse around. We have a really uh, high-powered blog where we talk about a lot of scientific uh, a, you know, knowledge. Um, we also have a podcast just like you do. And um, if you want to learn more about a coaching program, just click on the coaching tab in the navigation bar. 
and you can get on our wait list for our coaching program and um, we can help you transition your diet to a plant-based diet um, and uh, you can experience a lot of the benefits that we've been talking about up to this point. Love it. Thank you, Cyrus. Thank you so much, my man. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to be here. Wow, wow, wow. What an episode. What a wealth of knowledge Cyrus is. Beyond all things plant-based, Cyrus and I always banter on what CrossFit workout to do next. He's a trooper. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for tuning in today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. But more importantly, take the first step to learning and living a fitter, healthier, and more purpose-driven, conscious lifestyle. If you'd like more information on what's shared on this episode, or want to know how to connect with Cyrus or Robbie, visit awakemethod.com podcast. Beyond that, if you think of any of your friends or loved ones that could benefit from listening to this, do share it with them. Feel free to connect with me on socials at Awake Method. And if you like, share any aha moments you've experienced. Until next time, live once, eat plants. See you next time. Bye.